I think documenting from beginning to end all those, you know, all those deals that you've done up until the point to where you're ready to to go bigger is incredibly important. I think that's also if if you're if you're really still if you're spending your time around those that are doing bigger things, which you should be, as you're working up towards that goal, you should be spending time going to networking events and spending time around those that are already doing what you want to be doing. I think what you'll find is that you'll probably start to get noticed and it will make those conversations a lot easier. And also you'll have a better understanding of maybe what value proposition you can bring to the table for some of those groups that are already doing what you're doing. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast, and I'm really glad that you've chosen to join us for another episode. We have a really special guest today. We're going to be talking to Kevin Bupp, who is a real estate investor out of Florida, and he's got his hands in a lot of different projects. And he's a podcaster himself, and he has an amazing podcast, Real Estate Investing for Cashflow, which has hundreds of episodes and runs circles around this podcast, one of the ones that we aspire to to be as good at someday. And we'll say hi to Kevin in a second. Let's say hi to Rory Gill, our co-host, uh, attorney, broker from Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. Hi, hey, Jason. How are you? I have my notepad in front of me because I'm expecting to take a lot of good notes here. Kevin, yeah. you know, with this kind of hot market that we've been working on, thinking about different ways to invest and find ways to find cash flow, he's really taken a few strategies that you know, that are foreign to me. So I'm excited to hear what he's done, the projects that he's working on. And without any more, I'd like to welcome him on. Welcome, Kevin. Jason, Rory, excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're recording this on a very balmy day in Boston. I think the temperature outside is about 12, not including the wind chill. You're wearing your polo shirt because you (laughs) are enjoying some sunshine in Florida. So let me give you a quick little welcome and and explain to everybody who Kevin is and and why he's here on the podcast. He actually runs his own podcast and there's hundreds of episodes. If you have not downloaded Real Estate Investing for Cashflow, I strongly encourage you to do that. It's a great listen, talks about all different facets of real estate. Lately, there've been a couple episodes about commercial real estate. I know one you just published has the word blockchain in the title. So you know we're all talking about NFTs and blockchain and crypto Mm -hmm. and how that fits into real estate these days. And we don't really have to get into it on this episode because it's going to become an eight-hour fight between me and Rory. But that's for another time. Let's start from the beginning, Kevin. I mean, like you've been doing this for a couple decades and you know, you're, you're a real estate investor yourself. We understand that you've been working a lot in the mobile home space and in parking lots. And we have not had that discussion yet on this podcast, although lots of podcasts have covered it. So we're really curious to hear more about your success and your experience in those categories and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other things as well. But, you know, Kevin, tell us a little bit about, you know, how your career has evolved into where it is today. Sure. No, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've been investing now for 21, 22 years. So it kind of ages me a little bit, but I mean, I got started 19 uh, buying, just like a lot of folks do, buying single family homes, kind of followed the the guidance of a mentor that I had met, very luckily met at that at that young age who was doing the same thing in the small town, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, you know, just buying, you know, you know, C, you know, C plus class single family residences that need some work. And we would, I would flip them as needed to, you know, to generate more capital, 
wholesale them as needed. And then you would try to keep, you know, normally like one out of every three or four, I'd keep it as, you know, as, as an actual rental. And now that I was literally just modeling the exact same thing that my mentor had done. I, I was not reinventing the wheel at all. I figured what, what was the point he had done quite well in his life. He was about 25 years older than I. And so I was just literally following in his footsteps. And so, you know, that exact thing for, you know, for the next couple of years and accelerated it uh, quite a bit after moving to Florida back in, in 2002 and a fairly substantial portfolio, literally utilizing that exact method, just literally following in the footsteps of what others had had already done and uh, had had proven to be successful and, you know, built up a, a portfolio of single family properties of, of about 130 of them by my, by my mid twenties and then started buying multifamily properties and kind of evolving into smaller commercial properties, just trying to get a better understanding of, you know, what now I you know, perceive to be is a bigger game, right? Like big, bigger properties, just really bigger numbers. And ultimately that carried me to 2008. 2008 was a very challenging time down here in Florida. And essentially, you know, long story short, lost pretty much everything. Even my primary residence I was living, it was just, it was a very challenging time. Florida was kind of one of the, you know, one of the, the couple of ground zero where markets literally took a complete nosedive, um, not even down to the level they started that many years prior, but even to a negative level, no matter how much equity you have, uh, you seemingly were upside down on most investments, even rents went down. I know no one, a lot of people say that rents never go down. Well, they did. And they did for a period of a couple of years down here in Florida because we had a, a just a ridiculous amount of excess supply. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years after the crash was kind of working to, you know, figure out a way to rebuild myself. And that's why I was introduced to mobile home parks. And that was back in about 2010 when I was introduced to it and bought our first mobile home park at the beginning of 2012. And so, you know, just now, now a decade ago and bought that first park and it went quite well, bought a second park that went even better, bought a third park. And, you know, now here we are today, I've transacted, you know, I don't know the exact number, probably over 40 mobile home parks. Uh, we own parks today in 13 different states, you know, Northeast, Southeast, and a couple in the Midwest and I built a business around it. And so really accelerated it about seven years ago to where we started bringing on outside capital outside of just your know, friends, family, and our own capital. And aside from mobile home parks, we've expanded recently into to parking assets as well. So surface parking lots and, and parking garages in strategic locations. So it's a, it's been quite a ride. It's been a lot of fun. And mobile home parks were kind of a secret 10 years ago when I bought them, mm-hmm. when I started, we started buying. Now it seems to be one of the flavors of the year, or I guess maybe decade, we could say. And I think the secret's out. I wish I would have bought more back before mm-hmm. I found out about it. But uh, you know, either way, it's a great asset class to be in. And, you know, we've always been kind of contrarian investors. And so I always felt that way with mobile home parks. It's now it's kind of mainstream, but parking lots, very contrarian in nature, very niche and not many folks you hear talking about it just kind of like 10 years ago, mobile home parks. And so we're hoping that we can, you know, maybe you'll get a foothold and start buying these assets and consolidating that marketplace before again, it becomes the, uh, the flavor of the decade. So anyway, there, there's a condensed version of my background and my story. Yeah. Rory, I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many places I want to go with this. First, why, why don't we share with Kevin how important parking is where we live in Boston? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started to, people keep posting the individual parking spaces for sale um, in the area. The most recent one I saw in not a prime location was $65,000 for a single parking space. And I'm sure it goes way up from there. And I'm sure, you know, there are cities that are much worse than Boston on there. So, you know, that caught my attention too. I mean, another thing I would just kind of flag, I don't have questions on it, but we've spoken to a lot of people where Crash of 2008 really was foundational in their, their journey and their mindset. And those who are still here talking about it had, you know, suffered real hardship, but made some real strong adjustments for it. So, kind of going out from the 
the single family space that you were well mentored in and starting to look el- elsewhere, I think is a lesson that everybody should be taking, you know, maybe not following the exact type of investments, but having that flexibility and that ability to reimagine their goals during a hard time, I think has been a theme that we've seen with a bunch of our guests here. You know, but with that, you know, you talked about a bunch of different asset classes. How is it, you know, to go against the grain into a less traveled path and to look at parking lot storage units, mobile home parks, things that weren't the traditional single family or small multifamily rental? So the question was, how was, you know, I guess what, what sent me down that path? Is that, yeah, is that, yeah you know, with mobile home parks. So backing up before the crash, you know, we, we had started buying multifamily, you know, smaller multifamily properties. And I say smaller, you know, 20 unit, 24 unit, 36 unit. We didn't have anything larger than, uh, I think 70, 72 was our largest. And so we, we just, leading from single family properties, I realized the economies of scale and the efficiencies that were gained with the the multifamily stuff. And although that was kind of entering into a very turbulent time, 2007 leading in 2008, I knew that when it came time to rebuild, you know, back prior to the crash, I was single. I mean, I didn't have kids or anything like that. In 2008, I met, you know, who is now my wife. We have, you know, two wonderful children together. And so like, I I knew that you know, prior to that, I had all the time in the world to build this little you know, single-family home portfolio, which took a lot of time to acquire that many single-family properties that I felt were you know, worth keeping. And I wanted to, you know, to do it in a more efficient manner this time around. Again, I met my, my now wife, and we knew that we were going to have a family together. And I figured there was probably a better way to skin the cat. And so looking back, I, I knew that it was going to be multifamily when, when it came time to rebuild. And, you know, I just, by happenstance, a, a, literally a lunch conversation with, with a gentleman by the name of Randy back in 2010 is what sent me down the path of mobile home parks. I had never considered it as an asset class. I was introduced to Randy by just a mutual friend of ours, basically saying like, hey, Randy's a cool guy. He's been a banker for 30 years. He owns some mobile home and RV parks. But bottom line, he's a nice guy. You should go have lunch with him, right? Just talk business, talk shop, whatever. He's just a great guy. And I did. And after that two-hour lunch with Randy, where he basically threw in my face all the beautiful aspects of mobile home parks and why we should consider that asset class and not multifamily, I walked away from that, that lunch meeting with Randy, basically committing myself to saying, hey, I'm going to buy a mobile home park over the next 12 months. And so everyone needs a roof over their head. A lot of this country needs an affordable roof over their head. Mobile home parks very well fit that niche. And again, back then, unlike today, it was a it was kind of an under the radar asset class you know like those that were in the know didn't really talk about it that much they kind of kept the secret to themselves uh, now i understand why and so you know there was a, a lot less competition going after these mobile home assets uh, mobile home park assets than there were in the multifamily space so that's what we did that's what sent me down that path and again I, you know i had a lot of trepidation i didn't know what i didn't know there was many deals that i backed out of that first year that now i kicked myself in the butt wish i would have closed cuz i kind of followed them along their journey but we did buy one we pulled the trigger it took me about 14 months to pull the trigger on a a heavily distressed foreclosed mobile home park in Atlanta, Georgia, which we literally just sold last year. So I held it for quite some time and it was practically all vacant. I mean, it was a disaster, but we got it at a really good price and I have done some big projects in the past. So that didn't scare me away. It just, you know, the unknown scared me more than anything else, but we got into it, stabilized it in about a year and ultimately, you know, quadrupled our money, you know, got our money back within the first couple of years, refinanced it many times. I mean, we just, we made a lot of money on it. It was a great asset. But after that first year, once we got stabilized, I was like, there's, there's something to this. I mean, there's, for how much the amount of capital invested into this to what our returns were, our returns were just, I mean, 34, you know, like 35 plus percent after we got it stabilized. 
annual returns. And, and I wanted to see if we could replicate that. And we did for, for many, many years, continued buying and buying and buying. And it just became an asset class we knew really well. We were comfortable with it. And again, you know, felt like we were going against the grain and we were buying assets that other people were kind of snubbing their nose at or, or you know, weren't even considering to be a good investment. And so that was really the introduction. And I'm glad I stuck with it. And I'm glad I had that lunch meeting with Randy because I, I would have continued buying apartments, which are great as well. I, I've got a lot of my own capital invested with a number of sponsors in the multifamily space. Love it. You know, I love multifamily, but mobile home parks were the, the asset class that uh, worked well for us. Yeah. I think it's a lot of lessons there to, you know, the blocking and tackling analogy that I've used before, but, you know, defense wins football games, right? You know, if you know the basics, then you're a little, a little further along because you can focus in on what you want to do. Early on in your career, you, you said that, you know, you had a mentor who was 20 or 25 mm -hmm. years your senior and you basically said, well, let me just do what he's doing. It seems to work. Yep. And then leading up to the crash, it worked for you, right? And, Absolutely. and you might be in a similar situation with mobile home parks now where you had that meeting with Randy. And I'm, I'm curious how, how you know to trust people like in this space, because, you know, I, I think that in real estate, a lot of people want to help each other. But when it comes to asking for money and that kind of thing, sometimes like, you know, your your guard goes up and you say, well, geez, you know, do I do I give this guy money? Do I give this guy my time? Is this somebody that's going to screw me or not? And it sounds like you've had some success with finding some mentors that mm -hmm. have led you down a pathway, but maybe comment on that a little bit. Yeah. So, so Randy, I wouldn't say he became my mentor. I mean, we, we stayed in contact and we never did a deal together, but you know, the underlying fundamentals I understood, you know, I understood that everyone is looking, you know, I understood, you know, finding, you know, uh, the, the right market, right? The right market's the most important, the right location, right market. It's got to be in a, a market that has a demand for that particular product. So I understood how to make that determination already. I was comfortable with that. I didn't, as it was related to mobile homes per se, but like, again, everyone needs a roof over their head, especially an affordable roof over their head. So I got comfortable with the market that that park was in. I've got comfortable with knowing the, you know, massive renovation side of it that was going to be necessary. The big unknown factor was just the the mobile home, a mobile home in comparison to an apartment, right? Like it's, it's a different type of living structure. That was the unknown part of it. And so what I, the partner that I, uh, that I brought in on that very first deal was a, was a close friend of mine that I had done many other real estate transactions with. I had gotten to know him, you know, he and his brother when I moved down to Florida. They were a huge investors. They had you know, hundreds and hundreds of single family properties, lots of multifamily stuff. And so again, he was, he was more of a friend than a mentor, although we had done deals together. But I, he had actually bought about a year prior he lost everything in the crash too. And then a year, you know, you know, two years went by and he went and bought a couple mobile home parks. And again, we never even talked about this. He just went and bought a couple mobile home parks. And so he had already kind of, he had taken a couple be you know, beatings and bruises, buying it and trying to understand it and learning that asset class. And so he had already gone through some of the challenges that I probably would have ultimately faced if I had gone out of the loan, some of the unknowns. And so I actually brought him into that deal. Him and I partnered together. I trusted him already. We had already done some other transactions together. We both put money into the deal and we literally, you know, JV. I mean, he was as involved as I was. And so that's, that's really where my guidance came on that very first deal. And I was able to quickly eliminate some of those unknowns that caused trepidation. And moving forward, we bought a number of other properties together before I kind of went my own direction and you know, formed what now is Sunrise Capital Investors and you know, brought other partners in and started raising capital from outside folks and building a team underneath me. And so, but again, I, I guess you could say he was a mentor because I mean, although we were partners, he, you know, he, he was the guiding light. I think I think that's important with anything. I mean, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. There, there are the many other people out there 
that have already done what you want to do and have done it successfully. You got to find those individuals, you know, weed out the bad apples and, and find the ones that are trustworthy. And I think trustworthy comes from gut, a, a big part of its gut. I think your gut tells you a lot of everything you need to know when it comes to meeting somebody. If your guts, you know, uh, doesn't feel right, it's probably right. You should probably maybe reconsider uh, that individual as being a mentor. But I think just, you know, speaking to like going to an investment club meeting, you know, you, the 10% of that, that room that's there are the ones that are actually probably doing something. You know, talk to folks, find out who of that 10% are the ones that have a good reputation, have a good track record. You know, people speak very, very nicely about those folks and a uh, very positive manner. And those are the ones that you want to spend your time with. And, and those are the ones that you want to ultimately, you know, follow their path and potentially maybe even have them become your mentor if, if at all possible. Another call for networking. You know, it's important no, it's to go into these groups. Yeah, it's huge. Absolutely. I think the important things with those groups, though, you know, I haven't been to one of those investment club meetings for, for many, many years, but I remember when I started going, when I moved down to Florida, there was three of them within a 30-mile radius, a couple different nights of the week. And very quickly, I realized that I kept seeing the same faces there, the same faces of the people that would seemingly never take any action. You know, and it ended up being ninety percent of the of the group. Like you realize that these folks are just coming here. I don't know if they're coming for the free coffee or the crappy donuts or what, but they're here. But they're not doing anything. There's really only a small select group of people in that in, in those meetings that are actually taking action, that are doing deals, that you know, that are that are worthy of 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 I think your time. Right? We only have so much time in a day, and you want to spend your time around that ten percent, not the other ninety percent there that's there to network and talk, and you know, just for something social to do. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a combination of people trying to find a niche and find a space and, you know, getting excited in a new endeavor if they say, hey, I think I want to get into this. It's, you know, there is a lot of courage that goes into showing up at one of those meetings for the first or second time. And then you start to see some friendly yeah. faces there. But yeah, to your point, uh, if, if no one's really doing anything, it's just the same people that are socializing in a different manner amid the people that are actually taking action. We've gone to a bunch of them. Rory and I have Lately, we haven't with COVID. We we ran one a little bit last year. We had a couple meetups, and then you know the city kind of shut down again. So, you know, we put that put that on ice for a little bit. Things are different in Massachusetts versus Florida and other places in the country. Right. So, uh, yeah, we still have a lot of restrictions up here. But you know, it's super important. I mean, like networking online. You know, it's it it doesn't really quite take the place of networking in person, in my opinion. Mm. It's it's not a suitable substitute, but it's not terrible. It's something, right? While we're all, you know, kind of working through COVID, but, you know, in-person meetings are great when you find those right people, you know, the, the, the sniff test is important. Like if it, if it smells like it's sour, then, you know, run the other way. I agree. You know, I wanted to ask you, you've obviously outgrown just using your own capital. You know, you've have, you know, Sunrise Capital Investors. When you start taking on outside capital and outside investors, how does that change your your mindset and just the way you go about doing your business? That's a great question. I, I think it's, and I'll answer it by saying this, that it's it's a huge responsibility. And I think it's incredibly important. It, it doesn't mean that it's the only way, but I do think that it's incredibly important for someone. Let's say that you're going to start buying multifamily properties. Let's just use that asset class. I think it's incredibly important for an individual that that wants to scale. Everyone you know throws that word around. I want to scale. I want to, you know, whatever, buy a thousand units, two thousand units. I think it's important to actually risk your own money first before you uh, take the responsibility on of risking outside capital, right? And whether that means you go buy your first it's just a duplex or you know a four unit property. I think you need to prove that concept. It's, it's all theory until you actually go out there and do it. And, and I don't think anything says like, 
I'm willing to put all this on the line unless it's your own money that you're putting on the line, right? And so I think that that alone, I think gets you in a much more comfortable state that you'll do everything within your power to protect and treat that other capital, outside capital as, as if it's your own because you're, you're technically, you've already risked your own capital and you're probably risking your own capital in these next couple of deals that you're going to maybe bring outside capital in for. And so I was already like, I, I was... I was already in that mindset because I, I, I'd use my own money and then we start bringing in some friends and family money, right? Which I think that's probably the most uncomfortable of it all is the friends and family money. And uh, if you can get comfortable knowing that like you trust yourself enough and like, you know, you've proven the concept, like, you know, your craft so well and you're confident that you can bring in friends and family money, then I think you're already there. At least me personally, that's kind of how I felt. Like I, I just, I knew that we were really good at what we were doing and that, if anything, I was giving value to those that were looking to place their capital with us. Like it was a win-win. It wasn't just me asking for something. It was us sharing a value for, with each other. You know, they were sharing their capital with me, but then in return for that, I was going to share a wonderful opportunity with them. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of how I looked at it. And again, that's why, again, backing up, I think it's very important to prove your concept first. And even if it's on a small scale, I want to buy a big multifamily property, start with a duplex, document it use it as a case study. And again, make sure that your own capital is at risk. It's, I think that's the only way. I, that's my personal opinion, but I think that's really the only way to get comfortable. Yeah. That way, the, those Thanksgivings are not that awkward. You know, when you've lost <laughs> yeah. everyone, everyone's money in the room, you won't get invited in the future. Even when, you're, even when you're doing well with fam, I mean, like seriously, even when, even when things are going great, I still think it's, un- I, me personally, I, I've always felt uncomfortable and we've, we've only ever, all the friends and family money we've ever taken in, like it's done really well, right? I mean, like it's, we've done, we've exceeded expectations, but even then it just, for me, maybe that's just my awkwardness, I don't know, but it creates just a weird dynamic. It's no longer just friends and family. Mm-hmm. It's the money that they've worked incredibly hard for that could have a detrimental impact on their lives should something happen with the investment that you've taken that money in for, right? <laughs> That's just, yeah. uh, it's, there's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders there. Let me ask a question though, the next stage after that, you know, if you can mm-hmm. think back to some of your early deals, because I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast and probably yours and other podcasts that are out there, maybe they've done a couple deals, you know, they've mm-hmm. done a couple rentals, they've done their own primary home, maybe they have a multi, maybe they have other asset classes and they want to, they want to start scaling. They want to do either, you know, a mobile home park, a parking lot, more multifamilies, you know, they kind of have gone past their money. Maybe they've done some friends and family money. What's the next step? Like, what advice would you give for somebody that is saying, all right, you know, I've done two multis and now I want to take a big swing. Where do they find the money? Yeah. And I think that's the importance of documenting your, your process along the way, documenting the deals that you have done, talking about them, getting active in, in the real estate clubs, the meetings, other folks are, that are doing what you're doing, social media, right? Social media is this huge. I mean, like that, if you're not speaking about what you're doing in social media and, and you're trying to build a reputation for yourself and you're not out there sharing with the world of all the wins that you're having, then then you're shooting yourself in the foot. And so again, it, I think documenting from beginning to end all those you know, all those deals that you've done up until the point to where you're ready to, to go bigger is incredibly important. I think that's also, if, if, you're, if you're really still, if you're spending your time around those that are doing bigger things, which you should be, as you're working up towards that goal, you should be spending time going to networking events and spending time around those that are already doing what you want to be doing. I think what you'll find is that you'll probably start to get noticed 
and it will make those conversations a lot easier. And also you'll have a better understanding of maybe what value proposition you can bring to the table for some of those groups that are already doing what you're doing, right? Like this, I always say like multifamily and bigger deals in general, it's a team effort for the most part. Very rarely do you ever see a you know, 300 unit apartment complex, a 30 or $40 million transaction that's done by just one individual, literally one, you know, sole member of the LLC, I knew it exists. It exists, but like that is not the, that's not the common theme. The same goes with larger mobile home park transactions or larger parking transactions. It's, it's typically a team sport that makes this happen. And so what I have found, uh, there's a number of, of folks that we have that are partners with us on some of our larger mobile home transactions. For example, we just did a deal a couple months ago. Someone actually brought us a deal. Uh, he had already done, you know, seven or eight small mobile home parks, you know, smaller, meaning like a million dollars or less. And he was out there pounding the pavement. He, he ran across an opportunity for a two-park portfolio. It was a $13.5 million deal. He had strived to get to that point, but he wasn't there. He didn't have the capital source to do it. Uh, he he might've had the experience to be able to take it down, but he just didn't have access to capital to make it happen. And nor did he have the management infrastructure to actually operate it once, once he had taken it down. So he came to us and ultimately, not only did we give him a big finder's fee, but we actually made him a, a partner in the GP side of the deal. So now he's actually, he's in that deal. We're working on the operation side with him. You know, there's some improvements that are, we're going to be making, but we're kind of teaming up with him and his smaller company to actually work this deal together. He's learning a ton. He's kind of seeing how maybe a slightly larger group, you know, is doing, is doing things and, and maybe how he might be able to evolve his business to, uh, to do these larger deals by himself in the future. And so I think that's a great example of like what you can be doing. If you've already done a couple of deals, and you want to start, you know, getting bigger and doing uh, some scale. Kevin, when you take over a mobile park, a mobile home park, what, mm-hmm. what's like, what do you do that first month? Like, tell us about like day one, day seven, day 14, day 30. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Every, obviously, every property is different than the next, but you know we have a we have a specific branding that we use throughout all of our parks. So you go to any one of our parks, the the signage is the same. The name of the community might be different, but the signage is the same. The entrance looks the same. Even the landscaping at the entrance, assuming that it's a similar climate, like it it, it looks it follows all a, a the same theme. And so, you know, within that very first month of ownership, I mean, we're looking to execute on the improvement plan. And, and again, it includes signage, aesthetics. If the roads need repairs, we go in and repave the roads. If there's tree work that's needed, we go in and you know take trees out, trim trees up. If there's general cleanup that's needed, we, we do that and we improve the offices. You know, it's, it's more cosmetic over that first month than anything else. And I'd say there after that, the, the second step of that of that plan because that, well, that, that first step, not only does it improve the looks of the property, but it also builds a lot of trust with the residents because most of the things that we're taking over, not that they maybe have been mismanaged, but most of them have some type of deferred maintenance. Um, you know, they haven't been run as efficiently as maybe what they, what they should be run. And so our objective is to go in and build trust with the residents, you know, just not this new owner coming in going to do the same, you know, do it the way that, that the old people did it for the last couple of decades. And so that built a huge amount of trust that first month. They see a lot of positive things occurring. We put in playgrounds, you know, if there's not a playground, there's a lot of kids in the community. And then there after that, you know, we, we just look forward to, ex- you know, we, we look to executing our, our, the rest of the business plan. And that might mean bringing units into any of the vacant lots that are there. If there's any vacant homes that we acquire during the acquisition, we renovate those homes and, and, and sell them off to, you know, uh, 
you know, to, to, to new homeowners that we want to bring into the community. And that's it. I mean, that, that's, we, we find efficiencies. If, we, if the management side of things, we have on-site managers, each one of the communities, if we found that that was one of the challenges, we might bring in a new management team there on site to help us execute on those goals. But that's, that's really, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of like the first three months, I would say. And then thereafter, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't want to say this, but it's not really all that much rocket science. This is really implementing the, the business plan, you know, mm-hmm. uh, enforcing the rules, ensuring that, you know, rents are received between the first and the fifth of every month. If not, we have a protocol in place to hand out late notices and eviction notices and things of that nature. But it's really creating pride of ownership in the community. And, you know, and that also means sometimes putting events in place, like we do socials in the, in the summertime, you know, we do cookouts and things of that nature. We got prizes for nicest yard or, you know, nicest flower bed and, you know, do just different things like that to really engage the entire community, bring everyone together. I want to ask you more about, you know, to comment more on the kind of the, the broader impact you have in the community and what regulatory hurdles you face, because I know, across the country, we have a desperate need for affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why the, the secrets out on mobile home parks and why they turn into such a great investment, because there's such a demand for affordable housing there. So, you know, how do you, you know, how do you see your mission fitting in with the need for affordable housing? How do you relate to the communities? And do you face any resistance from local ex- exclusive zoning rules or anything like that? Yeah, no, it's a great, great couple of questions there. And I'll try to I'll try to break it down a little bit. So the first thing is like, how do we fit into the affordable housing space? And I, the best way to put it is that number one, mobile homes, especially new mobile homes that are rolling off the, you know, the assembly line today, they literally utilize the same type of construction materials as that of a an apartment building or even a single family home. I mean, they, they have two by four studs in the walls. They use laminate flooring or plank flooring, drywall in the interior, recessed LED lighting. I mean, they're again the same fits and finishes that you might find in a single family or an apartment com- newer com- apartment complex. And so, you could pick any market that we own a mobile home park in today. It doesn't matter. You know, northeast, southeast doesn't make a difference. And I can guarantee you. In our mobile home park, one, if, if someone's looking for a, let's call it a three-bedroom, two-bath, let's just pick that size of a unit. Our mobile home, a three-bedroom, two-bath mobile home is going to be substantially less, most of the time, 20 to 25% less than a comparable three-bedroom, two-bath apartment. And probably, you know, 40% less than that of a comparable three-bedroom, two-bath, single-family stick-built home. But I'm talking the same school district, same part of town. Same quality of residence, same you know, fits, finishes, what have you, but it's going to be substantially less. And so I think that that's a huge that's a huge piece of the puzzle right there as far as filling the need for quality, affordable housing. In addition to that, most of the time we put together creative plans, most of our communities, to where those that want to become a homeowner, if they don't just want to be a renter, we give them the ability to, to find that path to home ownership to where they can actually own that unit outright without having to come up with you know 20% down or 25% down, even if they've got substandard credit. And so it gives those folks that don't want to continue renting their entire life and throwing their money away, it gives them the ability to actually become a homeowner and live in a home that's theirs. They can hang out Christmas lights and you know put their own decorations up and have their own yard and things of that nature. So it's a beautiful thing. It, it, it's, it's, it's a beneficial piece of the affordable housing land landscape on the rental side, as well as on the home ownership side. So as far as like the you know, regulatory hurdles, you know, every, every, every municipality is a little different than the next. I will say that mobile home parks, unfortunately, you know, due to a number of bad actors years past, they just they somehow got a negative stigma attached to them. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because you can go to any town, let's pick Boston, right? Like there's speaking to, to single family neighborhoods, 
There's the really bad single family neighborhoods that are just like on the wrong side of the tracks have a lot of drugs, sex and rock and roll going right. Like just bad things going on. And there's the other end of the spectrum. There's incredibly high end affluent communities. And you've got the good hardworking blue class right in the middle, right? That exists in single family homes that exists in apartments. Same thing happens in mobile home parks. There's you know, the really rough ones that are just trailer parks that are run, you know, they're in a bad part of town, bad school district, just got the bad element. They're super high, nice ones, you know, retirement communities that have really expensive homes. And, um, and then there's everything that's in the middle that's really feeding that, you know, the blue collar segment of the, of, the, of the world. And, but unfortunately, all mobile home parks somehow get lumped into the, the bad category, the bad bucket. Mm-hmm. And, and so when going into it, you know, we buy a new acquisition, a lot of times, if it's been somewhat mismanaged, the taste in the mouth of the local municipality is normally not all that great. If it's been really mismanaged, it's, uh, there's a lot of initial friction. But normally what we do, if we have the ability to, we always try to get together the city council before we close on a property. And we actually sit down with whether it's just the city manager or it's the entire council, whoever we can get that is willing to be open-minded to what our, our plans are coming in. And we sit down and we actually share with them our business model, who we are, what we've done historically, and what we intend to do with this particular community. But then we actually do it, right? Even if they're not happy about it, we actually execute in our plan. And what we have found, for the most part, is that the attitude changes significantly over the first year after we go in and execute that business plan. We keep the bad elements out. We're not a drain on the resources. We don't have the, you know, the police being called there you know, twice a week. And, you know, kids running around breaking windows and things of that nature, vandalizing the neighborhood. So normally, you know, within that first year, we've become friends with the local municipality and it's not an adversary relationship like it may have been historically. In fact, uh, I've got a good, it's a good story on the very first park we ever bought, that park in Atlanta that I told you about. It was bad. I mean, it was practically, it was an REO. And so this is back in, you know, in the days when there was lots of REOs out there still. This thing, it's at, it had 33 units in it. And it had sat vacant for, for about a year. And so it had some squatters in it. I mean, like it just, it only had a couple of units occupied, but they were occupied by people that weren't paying the rent, you know, drug dealers, what have you, just bad elements. And so this, this park was known, you know, to all the local construction guys of a place they can go dump their, you know, excess construction materials. I mean, it just, it was a drain on the resources of the police department of the city. It happened to only be about an eighth of a mile down the road from the courthouse. That's also where the chief of police, that's where the police station was. And that's where the, the local mayor's office was as well. It's a small, small little uh, town of uh, a suburb of Atlanta. And so they had to drive past us every day. Mayor had to drive past us every day for years and years and just was, he was fed up. He was over it. And so we had our plan in place. We had scheduled a meeting with the mayor and his council. And there's about eight people in this meeting, chief of police, the mayor and all their staff. And we thought we were, you know, we're like riding high on our horse. We were going to clean this place up. We presented our plan to them, you know, after 15 minutes of us talking about all these great things we were going to do. The mayor looked at us and he was like, and he's this guy, let me, let me paint a picture for you. He's about six, four, little overweight, bald handlebar mustache. He had a, a stuffed fox on his wall, you know, a rifle. I mean, this, this is, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a little bit of a, a rednecky suburb of uh, Atlanta. And so he was, he was fairly int- intimidating. And he looked at us, he said, you guys are wasting your money. You should get out of my town. I've been trying to shut that trailer park down for years now, and I'm not going to stop until I, you know, until I accomplish my goal. And so we're not, we're not going to work with you. We're not going to make it easy. Take your money, go spend it somewhere else. <laughs> and uh, wow. my partner and I walked out of that meeting. Like, well, that did not go how we expected it to go <laughs> at all, <laughs> at all. And we looked at it, well, should, we, should we still do the deal? And it was such a good deal. And we felt so confident about it. We're like, you know what? Let's just go ahead. Let's do it. 
you know, let's do what we say we're going to do, what we just told them we're going to do. And let's see if their attitude changes over time. So the first thing we did was establish a really good relationship with the code enforcement lady. And we worked really, we basically gave our cell phone number, say, if you see any illegal dumping, anything like that, you call us right, and we'll get it taken care of. And we basically executed on our plan within a year. I got a call from the mayor, Mayor Bobby Cartwright. And I didn't have the number programmed and, and, he, and he called me personally. And he basically, it was an apology. It was an apology about, you know, he felt really bad about giving us such a hard time. He was very proud of what we had done. And uh, in fact, he called to tell me that one of his employees actually lives in the community now. I didn't realize that, but mm-hmm. she, they lived in the community. And he actually wrote me a recommendation letter, you know, that, that we use now when we go in to different municipalities that we, we share that, that recommendation letter with them and, and basically let them know that, hey, like this individual didn't believe in us. You know, we, we proved them wrong and we intend to do the same thing with you. And so it was a beautiful thing. It, it was a win-win for the community. It was a win-win for the residents. And, you know, it's, uh, it's still a, a beautiful place today. Yeah. It says a lot about relationship building and reputation and how important those are. They follow everyone around, whether it's good or bad. There's a lot of fear of the unknown, whether it's mm-hmm. people living in the community and you know, just by you going in there in that first month and doing a lot of cosmetic repairs and deferred maintenance and just taking care of those things. I think it goes super far with building that trust. As you've mentioned, you, know, you have your formula, your recipe down. The landscaping is the same everywhere. That is exactly what you should be doing because it makes it easy. You don't have to make that decision, right? But you know, building, building the relationship with the, the town manager, municipal folks, you know, that that's a great takeaway from, from this. I mean, you have to get people on your side and then you have to prove people wrong if they doubt you Mm -hmm. and you have to do what you say, you know, which is, it it sounds like that's kind of the values that you guys use going forward with all your other, your other deals. I say one of the key elements, I think this is important for folks that are, if you end up buying a property that's, that's a distressed and, and, and maybe has some of the wrong element in it and you're trying to get on the right side of the municipality. One thing we did in this community is we, we renovated one of the very front units that was alongside the road that was leading to the, to the mayor's office and the courts and the police department. And we donated it to the temporarily, but we renovated it, put the AC and the heat on, put, you know, stocked the fridge with waters and Gatorades. And we donated it as a substation to the police department for the next uh, 18 months. We knew we had plenty of other units that we had to fill up. And so we, we donated mm-hmm. it to them as, as a measure of good faith that allowed their officers a place to go, you know, in the middle of the night to, you know, we put some furniture in there to, you know, to write a report, get out of the cold, get out of the heat, whatever it might be. And that was huge as well. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, the, the old olive branch and it, that paid dividends. Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing advice, Kevin. You know, there's, so much more we could talk about this. We didn't even get into parking lots, but you know, let's save that for another episode just because I want to get to the final wrap up and then you could tell everybody where they could find you. We'll link everything up in, in the show mm-hmm. notes, obviously. So, you know, Kevin, we ask these questions of everyone who comes in the podcast. We get a whole variety of answers. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Our first question during the final wrap up is if you can get on stage with no preparation and talk for 30 minutes about any subject in the world, not mobile home parks and investments, what do you think that would be? You said not mobile home parks and investments? No, like my, mine, for example, yeah. is professional wrestling. It has yeah. nothing to do with this. No, 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 fantastic. So, so I'm a huge cyclist and you know, I, health and fitness more than anything else. It was, it was a critical part of me working through 2008, 2009, 2010. Those were really, really challenging years. And I really, there was only one thing I could really control at that point in time. And that was how I felt. And so I really, really grabbed onto health and fitness and just eating super healthy and getting, you know, a workout in every day, looking to break a sweat each and every day. Matthew McConaughey said that years back and that always stuck in my head. <laughs> and so I, I think just the, the importance of 
of being mentally fit, being physically fit, and making health and fitness a literally a part of your everyday life? Great advice. I wish I had more time. I go through bouts of it. You know, there's sometimes I'm really on think, the ball with health. And I think we all do, right? Like even yeah, those yeah. that yeah, the most dedicated, we, we all do. So especially the holidays are the most challenging, I would say, of, of all of them. <laughs> you know, you look at, I mean, I see the picture of your family in, in over your left shoulder. Uh, you know, you have two young children. I'm guessing they're below six or seven or so. That's, I think that's a year or two. Yeah, they're uh, five and eight now. But. Five and eight now. Okay. Yep. You know, so, you know, we, we have a, Rory and I actually have a three-year-old, like almost three. She'll be three in a couple of months. So it's, you know, it's a challenge, right? You know, to, to kind of parent and build business and, mm-hmm. and do things like this, you know, but we look at people like yourself and say, well, geez, like, you know, look at the empire he's built and he has these young kids and he finds a way to bike too. Aspire- you just got to wake up earlier than the rest of the family. I'm not a, I'm not a 4 a.m. Yeah. guy, but when I go on, on bike rides during the week, I wake up at 4 a.m. and go and I I dislike every morning that I wake up that early, but I feel really good after I get it done. <laughs> I can get you at five. I don't know if I can do four. Oh, yeah. It's rough. I haven't gotten used to it after doing it for like 10 years. So second question, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you work today. That's a great question. I think, I think just knowing that there's, you know, whatever, whatever you want to accomplish in life, there's many others out there that have already been there and done that, that can help you avoid a ton of mistakes. And so, you know, whatever you need to do, find that mentor or mentors, whatever that means to you and, and what it is you have as an ultimate goal or goals. And so that's it. I mean, that my, you know, meeting David, David was the very first guy I met back when I was 19. That was absolutely critical. And when I say that I don't know what I would be doing today, if I probably wouldn't be in real estate. I wasn't even overly interested in real estate when I met him. It's yeah, you know, we didn't go deep into that story there. But David not only played a critical role of you know turning me down this path, but actually sending me down a successful you know successful path. If I'd have tried to you know work my way through it, and making my own mistakes, for all I know, I would have gotten discouraged and actually quit. And so find that mentor mentors, find those that are actually doing and have already successfully done what you want to do and spend a lot of time around them and figure out how to add value to them, right? I think that's probably the, the most important of actually finding the right one, but figure out how, how do you add value to them in their lives? Because they've already done it. They've been there and they've done it. Figure out how you can add value to them. Great soundbite. Number three, and our final question for you is, what are you listening to or reading or watching these days? And I, I can't think of the author, but Who Not How, I just wrapped it up. It's a fairly short read, and I can't think of who the, the author is, but Who Not How. And it just, you know, being an entrepreneur, it's, it's uh, incredibly important to play to your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. And I think we all... No matter how focused we think we are on what our strengths are, we still find ourselves doing some things that probably are not the best use of our time. And who not how really speaks to that. It just really, you know, m- makes you think about, you know, don't, don't think of how, how do, how do we do this or how do we accomplish this goal? It's like, who can help us accomplish the goal? There might be someone better than you that you need to find that has the expertise that's been there and done that. Find that individual and implement them into your organization. So it's an incredibly powerful book. Again, really short read. And I don't remember the author, but I'm sure your your listeners can look it up and very quickly find yep. it. It's on Amazon. I'm sure it's a very quick Google search. Who, not how. How many letters? That's it. That? Who, not how. Uh, yep. Ten letters. Uh, Kevin, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your sharing all of your experience and insight with the listeners of the Real Estate Law Podcast. So let's talk about how people can find you. And first, I, I do want to encourage everybody right now to go find your podcast on iTunes or Pandora or iHeart or whatever you get your your podcast because those are the same places that we syndicate to. But real estate investing for cash flow. If you're watching mm-hmm. this, you could see it over his head right now. But if you're not watching this, real estate investing for cash flow. You publish episodes what every week? 
twice a week? Yeah, we actually do a couple times a week. Do a couple times. There's one main episode and then we've got some other, you know, recaps. We do three episodes a week right now. And okay. and I also have a I have another podcast. Uh, it's a mobile home park investing podcast. And I don't I posted for about four years straight. All of it's still very relevant. Most of it was very operationally driven content about how we run our business. And so we've, I think we've got maybe 130 episodes, but I do not post regularly on that podcast. However, it's still very relevant and has lots of great information for anyone that you know thinks they might have an interest in uh, going down the road of, of mobile home park investing. So uh, both those can be found again on you know iTunes or Stitcher or you know SoundCloud, all those other different Everywhere. areas that we all syndicate to. But the best place to find me, really, there's two areas. But my main website, KevinBupp.com, that's actually where I host the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast. So they can listen to episodes there or again find it on one of the other apps that we had mentioned. And then our company, if you want to see a little bit more of what we've got going on in the mobile home park or parking lot investing space, it's sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. So either one of those, you can learn about me and our company and what we've got working. And your Instagram is, I loved it, like little sound clips, you know, of you driving around in the car, right? What's the Instagram handle? Do you remember? Oh my gosh. And you're going to, you asked me that. I don't even know my Instagram handle. I think it's, it's at, okay. you know, Kevin Dash Bup, I, th- I believe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, somehow I found it very easily by putting your name in there. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think, I think it's Kevin, Kevin dash Bup. One total aside, I was thinking about this. I was dropping our daughter off at daycare and I didn't have my phone on me today. And it, you feel so naked without your phone. And I was thinking like, God, one of the coldest days of the year, if I break down between here and there, what's going to happen? I have this kid in the car now. I'm like, oh, I could just call Rory. And I'm like, who else could I call? Like, I, I don't know anybody else's phone number. You know, like that's about, you know, nobody knows their Instagram handles. Nobody knows their that's phone crazy. number. Yeah. Yeah. You just, it's in your phone. You just go find it. I know my wife's phone number and that's it. That's literally the only, that's the only phone number I've never, and my, and my parents' home phone line, which they still have, which is crazy. From growing um, up, right? I still that's know it. that phone number. Yeah. 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 They have the same phone number. They've had it for whatever, 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Kevin. Rory, quickly tell everybody where we can find you. <laughs> You can find me at Next Home Titletown, nexthometitletown.com or Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. Cool. So thank you for listening to the Real Estate Law Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to subscribe and to like and to comment. And I'm sure Kevin would say the same thing for his podcast. So go download that. Go give us some love. And thanks again for tuning in. See ya. Thank you. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.